All right, we are in Isaiah chapter 7 this morning, if you'd like to open up there. Isaiah chapter 7, and we are just going to really kind of slow down here this morning and just dig into verse 14. We studied through this chapter on Wednesday night, the whole chapter. I encourage you to go and listen to the study. It ended up being sort of like a seminary lecture, actually. Uh, went into a lot of the history and so forth um, uh, of this chapter. And so I encourage you to check that out. It's on our, our uh, social media pages if you're interested. Isaiah 7.14, we really need to just... Uh, drill down into this, into this verse here. And I'm actually going to spend a couple of weeks at least on this subject. It may go into three messages, but for sure this is going to be part one of at least a, a two-part message on the deity of Christ. So this uh, series is entitled The Deity of Christ. This is part one. Uh, the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. So Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 says this. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. So this is, this is truly holy ground. When we start to talk about the virgin birth the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God becoming man, God, the eternal God that created everything, taking on a human body, uh, and then living a perfectly sinless life. He was born of a virgin, therefore he didn't have a human father, therefore he did not have a sin nature like the rest of us, uh, which was necessary if he was going to be able to be an appropriate propitiation or sacrifice or atonement for the sins of other men. He had to have no sins of his own. He couldn't have any original sin. He couldn't have any acquired sin without spot or blemish like the Passover lamb uh, of the book of Exodus. And so uh, this is, this is uh, profound theology. This is profound Christology, the study of Christ and who Christ is. And we could spend a year on this subject. I have spent countless hours just studying for this message and uh, had to really kind of winnow it down and filter out a lot of uh, what I wanted to share. And, and, and I will share more uh, next week and, and, and possibly even uh, uh, two weeks from today as well. But suffice it to say, this is, this is holy ground when we're talking about the deity of Christ, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth, and the fact that His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And so these are all prophecies in the Old Testament to the Jews about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would come and die for the sins of the world. Now, verse 13, for the context, Isaiah the prophet says this, Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. So now he's not talking to the wicked king Ahaz anymore. He had offered to give Ahaz a sign. God offered to give him a sign, whatever you want, in heaven and on earth, whatever sign you want, Ahaz, to show you that God is with you. But Ahaz was a wicked king. He was offering his children as human sacrifices to Molech, the Bible says, uh, back in the 
uh, Chronicles and back in the book of, of uh, Kings. And so he was a wicked king, King Ahaz. He didn't want to ask the Lord for a sign, which was not humility. It was rebellion, actually, that he didn't want to ask a sign from God. Uh, when God says, ask for a sign, verse 11, uh, ask either in the depth uh, or the heaven above. And Ahaz says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. That's because he was a faithless king. He was a wicked king. Uh, and he was uh, running to the king of Assyria to buy the king of Assyria off to help him fight uh, his enemies instead of trusting the Lord. So here the Lord pivots away from Ahaz. No doubt Ahaz, being the king, had his court there with him, his counselors and those who were around him, his entourage. And so as Ahaz is rejecting the offer of God through the prophet Isaiah to ask for a sign, and he's saying, I don't need a sign from God. I've got it all taken care of uh, on my own. Then Isaiah pivots as it were. He's no longer talking to Ahaz. He's talking to everyone. He's talking to the king's court, to the, 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 the family of the house of David. And he says, hear now, O house of David. So this is no longer a specific prophecy to Ahaz. This is to the nation of Judah, to the house of David, the kingly line of David. He says, is, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. He's speaking now to who? To the house of David, to the nation of Judah. So this is the prophecy to the nation, to the uh, Davidic line. I will, the Lord himself will give you a sign, not Ahaz, you, the house of David. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And this was not a prophecy that was going to be fulfilled in Ahaz's day. This wasn't a prophecy that would be fulfilled in Isaiah's day. It would be hundreds and hundreds of years later before this prophecy was fulfilled. This prophecy was probably given around 733 B.C. Uh, when Ahaz was the king over Judah. And Jesus wasn't born, of course, until uh, the calendar changed. And so you're talking at least 730 years uh, after this prophecy was given that it was fulfilled through Jesus being born to the Virgin Mary. Now, this incredible prophecy of the virgin birth is foundational to the Christian faith. So the critics and the Bible critics and the atheists and the atheists who run the seminaries and, and so forth, they, they have a really hard time with the virgin birth. And they try and attack the virgin birth uh, because if you could take away the virgin birth, uh, you take away the deity of Christ because then Jesus just becomes an ordinary man who's born of another man who has a sin nature and therefore he would not then be able to be a substitutionary atonement or propitiation to die for the sins of other people. Because if Jesus was not God, if he had a human father, and if, if God the Father was not his father and he had a human father, uh, someone other than Joseph or, or, or Joseph his stepdad or what have you, as the skeptics say, then there's no way that Jesus would have been qualified or able to die for the sins of other men. He would have had to die for his own sins if he was just an ordinary man. And so, of course, Satan always uh, attacks the deity of Christ. Satan always attacks the virgin birth and so forth. So it is, this is a foundational theological doctrine to establish the deity of Christ, which then establishes that Jesus Christ is God, the triunity of God, the Trinity is wrapped up in this, uh, and so forth. And so if you, if you uh, neglect to understand the virgin birth or you dismiss or discount the virgin birth, you are in deep 
theological trouble because this is foundational to who Jesus Christ is. Uh, for example, in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, John wrote this. He himself, speaking of Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. This one verse wipes out limited atonement and five-point Calvinism and all the rest right off the bat because Jesus uh, did not die only for the elect. He died for the sins of the whole world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. It wasn't for God so loved the elect that He gave His only begotten Son. Uh, as limited atonement uh, teachers will tell us, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. That doesn't mean the whole world's going to be saved. People have to humble themselves, repent of their sins, trust Christ as their Savior, and be born again in order to be saved. But Jesus Christ took the punishment. He took the punishment on the cross of Calvary for the sins of the whole world. The word propitiation is the Greek word helisterion, which could be translated atonement, but it, uh, propitiation means more than atonement. It's literally uh, Christ uh, dying and taking the wrath of Almighty God upon Himself that we deserve, that, that mankind deserved, uh, in order to allow us to have the opportunity to have our sins forgiven. We owed a debt for our sins to God. That debt would have been for us to be in hell for all eternity because we're all sinners. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. And so we all deserve death. We all deserve eternal death. Jesus died in our place. And not just for us, those who would believe, but for the whole world, anyone who would believe on his name. And the only way that Jesus Christ could uh, be sinless and a divine human being is if he was born of a virgin and did not have a human sin nature. You remember David said in Psalm 51, uh, in sin, my mother conceived me. Speaking of original sin, we're all born with it, with original sin, the sin that is passed down to us from our. Uh, federal head, Adam, who was the first man who sinned, and we've all inherited that sin nature. If you don't believe it, just watch a toddler uh, throw a temper tantrum, or watch a teenager, or watch anyone for any amount of time. You could watch me, and I'll watch you, and we'll prove that the Bible's right. We're all sinners, and, and so we're born with a sin nature. We have to literally fight against our sin nature in order not to sin. It's the most natural thing in the world for us to sin because we're human. It's in our DNA. It's in our flesh. That's why this flesh has to die and this flesh has to go back to the earth someday. So these questions here, why did Jesus have to be born through the Virgin Mary? Why is that critical to the Christian faith, foundational to our faith? Why did he have to be human? How come he couldn't have just been God who came down and, and, and just uh, uh, somehow saved us from our sins uh, without having to be uh, a man? How could God, who created the universe, wrap himself up in humanity and bind himself in a human body? See, these are, these are major uh, problems intellectually for a lot of theologians, but nonetheless, it is all true. It's all necessary for Jesus to be the Savior of the world. And how does this pave the way, this virgin birth, this uh, incarnation of Christ, the deity of Christ, fully God and yet fully man, how does this pave the way for his death, 
his burial and his resurrection to address, uh, uh, you know, our sin and, and to save us from our sins. So we're going to try and deal with these questions throughout uh, the next few weeks in this series. So again, back in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name, or actually it doesn't say you, it says, and shall call his name, really meaning that the virgin will call his name, she will call his name. If you read it in its context, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name, so this would be the virgin calling his name, Emmanuel. Or God is with us. And, and of course, uh, Mary knew very well that God was the Father. She had never been with a man. So she knew that she had a baby uh, from God himself. She was a virgin. And so uh, Mary knew this is God with us. This is God's Son, His only begotten Son. Now, the, there are some creeds that we don't really deal with too much in the Calvary Chapel Church, or really even in the modern church, some of the more traditional older denominations uh, read these creeds and so forth. But it's, it's kind of important for us to understand our history and, and the history of the church, that this is a foundational, fundamental, theological truth that has been passed down uh, for the last nearly 2,000 years about the virgin birth uh, of Jesus Christ. There was a council that met in Nicaea in 325 A.D. And I'm going to read to you from this book, Foundations of Pentecostal Theology by Guy Duffeld and uh, N.M. Van Cleef. And this was uh, some of Pastor Chuck Smith's uh, professors when he was in college at Life uh, Bible College back, I think, in the 50s. And, and so this is a great book of uh, Foundations of Pentecostal Theology. But I'm going to read to you. The first council met at Nicaea in 325 A.D. when Athanasius prevailed against Arius and the deity of Christ was confirmed. Controversy continued and other councils were held at Chalcedon in 351 A.D. and at Constantinople in 381 A.D. And at this last council, the doctrines of the deity of Christ and that of the Trinity were upheld and formulated into what we call the Nicene Creed. And I will read this to you, the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, and we believe in the Holy Ghost, who is the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, who with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. And so this was established in the very earliest days of the church that the deity of Christ is a foundational Christian position and doctrine and the virgin birth also. Now, he continues here, the major Protestant bodies have closely followed this ancient creed, the Nicene Creed, of the 4th century. 
The best known of the Reformation creeds is the Westminster Confession, which reads as follows. So this is out of the Reformation, affirming uh, the Nicene Creed from hundreds of years earlier. The Westminster Confession reads as follows. There is but one living and true God. In the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father is one, neither begotten or proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. So this is the foundation of our faith here in uh, Calvary Chapel Visalia in 2020. These, these were theological truths that were established hundreds and even uh, a, almost a couple of thousand years ago. The Westminster Catechism talks about the virgin birth as follows. Christ, the Son of God, this is the Westminster Catechism. Christ, the Son of God, became man. By taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and born of her yet without sin. These words from the Apostles' Creed sum up the belief of the early church conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. And because he was born of a virgin, uh, yet without sin. So he was a man, but he had no sin and no sin nature. So these are uh, some of the truths that we believe today and that we are going to be looking at here uh, this morning in the next couple of weeks. Now back in Genesis chapter 12, you, you have the promise of this Messiah, this Savior, that was going to come and that was going to save uh, Israel and really to be the king over all of the earth. And in, in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, the Lord had made a promise to Abram, whose name was later changed to Abraham. And this is one of the first mentions that we have in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Messiah uh, who was to come. And the promise to Abram was this in Genesis 12:1: Get out from your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so there's four promises, at least four that I find here, that God made to the nation of Israel, to the founder of the nation of Israel, the father of the faith, Abraham, he says, if you leave your country, he came from the Ur of the Chaldees, from the area of ancient Babylon, and your family, your father's house, and you come to a land that I'm going to show you, this is what I'm going to do for you, Abram. He says, number one, I am going to uh, give you a land that I'm going to show you, the promised land. He says, I am going to make, verse 2, a great nation of you. So there was going to be a nation that was going to come from him, a land that God was going to give him, a nation was going to come from him. The land was the land of Israel. The nation is the nation of Israel. He says, continuing in verse 2, I will bless you and I will make your name great. And so there is this great name that God promised to Abraham. 
uh, and, and you, you say, well, so far God's three for three. God gave him the promised land. God created a nation, the nation of Israel, uh, and God made Abraham's name great. I mean, Abraham's name is known all over the world. The Muslims revere Abraham, the Jews revere Abraham, and of course the Christians revere Abraham as the father of the faith. So his name is indeed great. And he says, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so this is the Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham. And, uh, and, and he's pointing forward to the Messiah. But he says here, I'm going to bless those who bless you and I'm going to curse those who curse you. And I believe to this day that this is one of the reasons that God has blessed the United States of America so greatly. Because we are the one nation that has stood beside, right alongside the nation of Israel. We're the only nation that has stood beside Israel from their founding in 1948, their reestablishment as a nation, coming back into their land through the Zionist movement after the Holocaust. Uh, and, and they uh, received their charter uh, in order to reestablish their nation after being dispersed around the world for nearly 2,000 years. And the United States was really the only nation who stood with Israel in their war of independence when all of the Arab nations came to wipe them out and drive them into the Mediterranean Sea. We have supplied them with aid. We have supplied them with military aid. We have uh, helped them with intelligence and, and so forth. And so as we have helped Israel, our nation has prospered. I mean, really, if you look back to where uh, we came out of World War II, out of the Great Depression, things weren't great for America uh, going into World War II. But coming out of World War II, the, to the victory go the spoils and so forth, uh, our nation just exploded, prospered, prolifically uh, prospered economically and militarily and so forth. But that happened to coincide also with us supporting the nascent, newborn nation of Israel who came back into being in 1940. Eight. And so God says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And every nation that's come against Israel has ended. Even, even the great British Empire that ruled the world for hundreds of years, the sun never set on the British Empire, the British gave a hard time to the Jews in the early 1900s after the Balfour Declaration, after World War I, when the Jews wanted to come back into the land. The British gave them a difficult time. As a matter of fact, the British were aligned with the Palestinians, with the Arab peoples, because they wanted the oil. They wanted the money for their industrial revolution. And so they kind of sold the Jews out, uh, and they did not help the Jews. Uh, there in Jerusalem and in Palestine in the early 1900s. And as soon as uh, England, the great British Empire, turned against God's chosen people, they became uh, a, a second-rate power, and the United States became the first-rate power in the world. We stepped into that role. Before, that, before us, uh, England had taken care of, tried to help the Jews and the Zionist movement and so forth, General Allenby and uh, everything else there uh, with the uh, Balfour Declaration. So it's, it's something that's a promise. I'll bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. We are called to be good to the Jewish people, even the Jewish people who don't believe in Christ. There are many Jewish people who do believe in Christ. But I believe that this is true for the nation. I'll bless those who bless you, speaking of Israel, na nationally. And I believe this is true individually. I will bless those who bless you. So if we are a blessing to the Jews, if we're a blessing to the nation of Israel, if we are a blessing to Jewish nationals or 
people who practice Judaism or people who are the physical, literal descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the ones that Hitler went after, who had Jewish blood and Jewish DNA, if we bless them, I believe that God will bless us. And if we go against the Jews or we curse the Jews or we build some sort of a weird Aryan, you know, philosophy that God has replaced the Jews with the church or, or anything like this, we are bringing a curse upon ourselves. All the churches that have turned against Israel, denominational churches that have turned against Israel, are no longer, you know, ma- mainstream denominations or powerful denominations. They have weakened uh, uh, dramatically. And the churches that have continued to support Israel are the ones that are shining brightly in these last days. The final promise was, and in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And so this is a reference to the Messiah who was to come, Jesus Christ. Uh, One of your descendants in you, through you, Abraham, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. We know that the, uh, the offspring of Abraham... He, he had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob's name was changed, changed to Israel. It, Jacob had 12 sons. They became the 12 tribes of Israel. And so God's promises were flowing through Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, and his 12 sons who became the nation of Israel. Now, when Jacob was dying, he called his sons around him, and he gave them prophecies and promises about each of the 12 tribes. And we read this concerning the tribe of Judah in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 8. Jacob says to his son Judah, he says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. And Judah's name means praise. Jew comes from Judah, actually. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So you had the promised Messiah that was going to come through Abraham and through the nation of Israel. And so God is now clarifying and detailing which of the 12 tribes the Messiah was going to come through. He's saying it's going to come through Judah. He's going to come through Judah. Of the 12 tribes, Judah is the one whom the scepter shall not depart from his hand. The scepter speaks of a king, that he would be the king that would rule over the rest of them. And the promise would flow through Judah and his offspring to, down to uh, Jesus Christ eventually. Now, in Deuteronomy and chapter 18, when uh, Moses was there, the lawgiver, uh, God also promised that there would be one who would come that would uh, be like, like Moses, a prophet like Moses in the last days. Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 18, he says, I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it 
of him. And so the Jews were looking for this one. They knew that the kings would come through Judah. They knew that the blessing was coming through Abraham and the promises of God to Abraham. And then Moses is telling them there's going to be a prophet uh, who's going to be from among you. He's going to come from among you, from among your brethren, and he's going to have my words in his mouth. I will put, God's saying, I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak uh, to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words through this one who's going to come, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. And so uh, this, again, was a hint of the one who was to come, Jesus Christ, that he would be like Moses. Uh, he would be one who has God's word in his mouth, and, and that as he speaks, he will be speaking only the word of God. Whatever he, uh, I, I command him to speak, he will speak uh, in my name. Now, David was also given a great promise of God related to the coming king and the coming Messiah, King David. Uh, God gave him this promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 8, and this is uh, called the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God gave to King David and his seed, his offspring, or his family. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 8, I'll read it to you, says this, now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all of your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth." Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that he will build you a house or make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now this is an amazing prophecy. David understood what this meant because David just was humbled. He was speechless after this. The man who wrote, you know, Dozens and dozens of the most beautiful psalms and really was never lacking for words. David was speechless after God made him this promise because he understood that God was telling him the Messiah is going to come through you, David, through one of your offspring, one of your seed, because he's going to have what? An everlasting throne. He says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Only God can sit on a throne forever. Only God can do anything forever as an everlasting kingdom. Only God. Man doesn't live forever. And so David understood that this wasn't just speaking of his son, Solomon, who was going to become the next king. And Solomon was actually going to lead the nation into idolatry. So he wasn't just speaking of Solomon, the son that was going to be the next king. He's saying, I'm going to build this, uh, th this dynasty, as it were, this kingdom that's going to come forth from your loins, from your own body. It's going to come after you through your seed, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And the church is the house of God. 
The ecclesia, the called out ones. We are the house of God. The house that God has built through Jesus Christ is the church. And the kingdom will be forever. And so David understood this to mean that the Messiah, the anointed one of Israel, would come forth from his loins, would come forth from his family, from his seed forever. So with all of that, we understand in Isaiah, which is, of course, hundreds and hundreds of years later from King David when that prophecy was given, and, uh, you know, over a thousand years since the prophecy was given to Abraham and and Judah and so forth, uh, that Isaiah, God was now showing Isaiah how this individual is going to come onto the scene. You know, they knew he was going to come through Judah. They knew he was going to be of the nation of Israel. They knew that he was going to come through the literal physical line of King David. And now God gives a little more detail, a little more insight in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So that's another hint, another key to understanding who this individual would be. He would be of this whole family tree, but he would be born of a virgin. And that's something that's never happened before, never happened again. One time in history, a virgin conceived without uh, the uh, seed of a man and brought forth a son. Now Isaiah also said in Isaiah chapter 9 in verse 6 concerning this son who was to come, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So just in a couple of chapters later, after God gives Isaiah the prophet, the prophecy of the virgin birth, that he will be God with us, come forth from a virgin, then in chapter 9, in verse 6, he tells us that this individual is going to be a child. He's going to be a son that's given, a child born, a son that's given. He's going to have a government And his name is going to be the name of God. He says his name's going to be called Wonderful Counselor. His name's going to be the Mighty God and the Everlasting Father. You see, this is all in the Old Testament. The New Testament just expounds on the details of this. But God told the Jews to expect that this one who is to come, he's going to be God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God is with us. He's going to be called the Everlasting Father. He's going to be called the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. He's going to have an eternal reign, an eternal, everlasting reign. No man, no man who's human can do anything longer than he's here on the earth. 50, 60, 80, 100 years, whatever it is. And then his reign ends, his kingdom ends. But not so for this man. This is the God-man. And there will be no end to his kingdom. He will reign indeed forever and ever and ever. Now, the New Testament picks up on this language and this understanding when Jesus Christ is born to the Virgin Mary. This is kind of like a Christmas message, isn't it? You, you write these scriptures on your Christmas cards, and we usually teach a sermon like this 
Christmas uh, Eve or, 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 or the Sunday before Christmas when we're in church. Just the fun part of going through the Bible uh, in an expository way, verse by verse, we, we get to go through all these wonderful scriptures anytime, every time we come across them. But in Matthew chapter 1, we read this concerning the actual events of this man being born to a virgin that was prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18, we read this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was a virgin, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about those things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take, uh, to take you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus is Yeshua, which is the salvation of Jehovah, or Jehovah's salvation. He is the salvation of Jehovah in the flesh. For he will save his people from their sins. So all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. Isaiah 7.14 is being quoted here in the New Testament. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife, and he did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. And so uh, Mary was not unfaithful to Joseph. They were betrothed to be married. They were not married yet. She was a young woman. Uh, as we're going to see here in a minute, the, um, the name uh, uh, Alme in, in the Hebrew uh, from Isaiah 7:14 in the original language uh, means maiden or, or damsel or virgin. And uh, the clarification is here that, uh, that she's going to be a virgin, a young woman. She's not going to know a man sexually or physically. Uh, and so for Mary to turn up pregnant, it was a problem for Joseph. I mean, he could have had Mary stoned, as you, as you know. That would have been the sin of adultery or sex outside of marriage was a very serious crime and sin in this, in this time. And uh, he, could have, he could have had Mary brought up on charges of adultery because they were engaged to be married, and an engagement was as good as being married, although they had about a year waiting period between the time they got engaged and the time when they actually would get, come together and consummate the marriage sexually. And so this was before they had consummated the marriage sexually. She turns up pregnant. And, uh, and Joseph was going to, as a good man, put her away privately so that she wouldn't be shamed and possibly stoned to death for adultery. And then the angel appears to him to tell him, uh, no, this is the prophecy in Isaiah 7.14 that is being fulfilled. This is the virgin who is conceived, who is bringing forth a child who will bear a son, whose name will be called Emmanuel, which translated means God is with us. And, and Mary had not known a man at this point. 
It says that Jesus was her firstborn son. She had other sons. She's not the eternal, perpetual virgin Mary, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches today. Uh, She had other children. Jesus had siblings, half-brothers and half-sisters. In Luke chapter 1, in verse 26, we see when the angel Gabriel came to Mary, the virgin, the young woman, the maiden, the damsel, who had not known a man who was going to carry God's only begotten son. We read this in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now the genealogies are given in Luke and Matthew. Both Joseph and Mary were of the line and the family of King David through two of David's different sons, actually. So uh, his stepdad was uh, Joseph. Jesus' stepdad was Joseph. He was of the line of, of, of King David, the family of David. And his biological mother, the Virgin Mary, was of the family of the house of David also. Verse 28 says, And coming in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you, and blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, or Yeshua. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So here it is. This is the throne of David, the everlasting kingdom that God promised David is going to come through this young man, this boy, this child. He will be great. He'll be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. So again, he couldn't just be a normal human to do anything forever. Humans can't do anything forever. We die. But this one will come and he will have a forever uh, kingdom over the house of David. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. He's going to have an everlasting kingdom forever. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I do not know a man? I've never been with a man. I'm a virgin. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who is called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So he's going to be the son of God. He's going to be over his father David's throne. He's going to have an eternal kingdom. And he's being born to a virgin. All of the prophecies are being checked off here that the Jews were given by God in the Old Testament. And it's interesting that when, when Mary was saying, how can this be? I don't know a man. The angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest. In other words, God's going to inseminate you himself. There's not going to be a man involved in this. And, and, and you're going to conceive. And the Holy One that's to be born to you is going to be called the Son of God. And being the Son of God in this culture meant that he was equal with his Father. The phrase only begotten, son of God. He's the only begotten son of God. The Greek word is monogenes, 
carbon copy, exactly identical. He's the only one who's the carbon copy of God the Father. There's no other man, no other human who's ever lived. That's exactly like God. That's why Jesus would say, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. I and my Father are one. He was equal to the Father. He said, I always do the will of him who sent me. It is uh, my, my pleasure to do thy will, O God. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. He's the only one who came and always did the Father's will because he was exactly equal to the Father, monogenous, the, genus, the only begotten of the Father, a carbon copy, exactly like God. If you've seen me, Jesus said, you've seen God. I and my Father are one. Now, there's an even more ancient prophecy that comes even before the promises of the Abrahamic covenant way back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 that hints at the virgin birth. In Genesis chapter 3, when God was pronouncing the curses upon the serpent and upon the woman and upon the man for their sin and their disobedience to God, you read this in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you were cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. So this is a curse upon the serpent who tempted Eve to sin. And then Eve uh, handed uh, the fruit, the forbidden fruit to Adam and he sinned. Verse 15 God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. You could stop right there and say, yep, that's true. Women do not like snakes, right? I mean, enmity between you and the woman to this day. It's a rare woman that will hold a snake. Uh, there's just something there, uh, part of the curse. I'll put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed. So now he's speaking specifically to uh, the devil, your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, speaking to the devil, and you shall bruise his heel. Notice here that God is saying the woman has a seed between your seed and her seed. The woman has a seed. Now, this was, a, this was an indication that this was going to be an unusual baby that was going to come, that was going to crush the head of the devil the devil was going to strike his heel and wound him and hurt him badly. Speaking of the cross of Calvary, but he's going to crush his head at the cross of Calvary as well. Jesus Christ defeated Satan, defeated death, defeated hell, defeated sin on the cross of Calvary when he was raised after three days. He defeated the devil. And all victory and all authority was given to him over all heaven and earth, Jesus said. All authority is granted to me in heaven and on earth in fulfillment of this prophecy. But God was even hinting here that the woman would have a seed. A child would be born to a woman. The seed of the woman is unheard of. It's the man that has the seed. The woman has the egg, the ovum. And so this was the very first hint or reference from the very beginning to the Jews that the one who's going to be born, who's going to crush the head of the devil, is going to be born the seed of a woman to a virgin. Now again, back in Isaiah chapter 7, and actually I'm just getting started here this morning with my message, but I'm already out of time, so that's why we're going to have to continue this next week. Uh, but back in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, where we started, 
Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin, virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel, or God is with us. So the virgin was going to conceive and bear a son. Now the Bible critics and the uh, critical scholars and so forth will say that the Hebrew word that's used doesn't necessarily exclusively always mean uh, uh, that it's a virgin. That they could have used a different Hebrew word. Uh, and there's a big, you know, there's a big argument there theologically. But the bottom line is this: the Holy Spirit inspired Isaiah to use the word alme, A-L-M-A-H, alme for the word virgin. There was another word he could have used, but the other word actually is used for women who had been married. Their husbands had died and they were single, you know, uh, but, but previously married women. And that's not the word that God used. God used the word alme, which is a young maiden, a young virgin, or a young damsel. Clearly someone who's unmarried and someone who has never been together uh, with a man before. She's never had sex. She's never had a husband and so forth. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. So God was very clear here that he was speaking of a virgin that was going to conceive, not an unmarried woman who was going to end up pregnant that was going to have a child. That wouldn't be any big deal. That wouldn't be a miraculous sign for just a woman to have a baby out of wedlock, you know, or, or an unmarried woman to get pregnant and have a baby. That's not a sign. A virgin conceiving is a sign to shake the nations and to stand out among all other babies that have ever been born. And so this is going to be a sign to who? To the nation of Israel, to the house of David, the Messiah who is to come is going to be born of a virgin. Now, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, this is, the Septuagint was written before, uh, the Septuagint was written before Christ was born. It was written somewhere between um, 250 to 275, somewhere in that B.C., the Septuagint. The Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written originally in Hebrew, the language of Israel, the Hebrew language. But the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, Koine Greek, which was common Greek, uh, through the Septuagint when the Greeks were ruling the world. And uh, one of the uh, Alexandrian Jews who was in the court of one of the kings, Ptolemy II, in Alexandria, Egypt, uh, remember after Alexander the Great conquered the world, his four generals, when he died, split up his kingdom. And they ruled pretty much the whole uh, Middle East at that point and most of the known world at that point. The, the Greeks did. Uh, Ptolemy is, is, is the family that took over the area uh, of Egypt. And Ptolemy II uh, wanted a translation, apparently, of the Hebrew Bible. There were many Jews in Egypt at this time, apparently, in 250 B.C., 300 B.C., etc. And so they wanted a Bible in the Greek language because everybody spoke Greek at this point. Nobody really spoke Hebrew anymore. Some people spoke Aramaic, which was a blend between Hebrew and Babylonian, uh, and, and very few people spoke Hebrew or read Hebrew uh, at this time in uh, Israel's history. And so they wanted a translation of the Bible in the common tongue, the common language, which was the Greek language, which is the most precise language ever invented by man, actually, Koine Greek, common Greek. And so he had 72 Jewish scribes, uh, historians say, who he brought to Alexandria, Egypt, to actually translate the Old Testament from Hebrew into 
Greek, and you ended up with the Septuagint. And so the Septuagint was translated from Hebrew to Greek hundreds of years before Christ was born. And this was the Jewish Bible. This was the Bible the early church would have used. The Septuagint is what John and, and Peter and Paul, the apostle, would have spoken and known. The language they would have spoken, the, how they would have preached their sermons. The letters that they wrote were in Koine Greek. Our whole New Testament is written in Koine Greek, actually. So this was the Bible of the early church, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. Septuagint means 70, rounding down the 72 Jew Jewish scribes to the number 70, Septuagint. And this was the way to spread God's word to the common man, and especially for all of the Jews that were scattered throughout the Greek empire. The reason I bring this up is that they translated, these scribes and experts in the Jewish law, translated the word alme in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 into the word parthenos. And the Greek word parthenos means very clearly a virgin who has never been with a man. So the Jews knew 250 years before Christ was born that this word alme, written 733 years before Christ was born, translated into the modern language of Koine Greek, was a virgin. Parthenos was the word that was in the Old Testament Jewish Bible to speak of this woman who would have the child that's name would be called God is with us. This is, again, the Bible that the early church or the translation of the Bible that the early church would have used and referenced at the time of Christ, the Septuagint. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were discovered in the caves of Qumran that were written in the first century B.C., by the Essenes, a zealous religious Jewish group that met out in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the desert. Some of you have been to the Dead Sea. I've been there before. Some of you have been to the uh, Qumran Caves. I've been there too. And uh, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's out by the Dead Sea. It's hot. It's dry. It's miserable. Uh, and, uh, and yet they discovered these scrolls, these goat herders, Arab goat herders, Bedouins, uh, were throwing rocks looking for uh, one of their goats that have wandered off into the caves and threw rocks into the cave looking for their goat. And they broke a, a shattered vase and went in and they found these old leather uh, um, scrolls. And uh, they ended up selling it to a, uh, to a church there. I believe it's an Orthodox Greek church there in Jerusalem. And uh, then they did this huge excavation and they found, uh, you know, hundreds of these scrolls over a period of, of decades in the Qumran area. And it's important to understand the, the significance of this. These were written actually in Hebrew because these were zealous Essene scribes, zealous Jews in the 1st and 2nd century B.C. during the British Empire and the Roman Empire, actually. Uh, and they wanted to preserve the Word of God in the ancient language of Hebrew. And so the uh, text that we have, the Hebrew text that we had of the Old Testament, Prior to 1948, 49, 50, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, uh, they were written somewhere around 1000 A.D. So what, what they looked at was, okay, we have the Masoretic Scrolls, which were written around 1000 A.D. by the Jewish scholars. These are Hebrew copies of the Old Testament. Some of them translated from the Greek Septuagint into Hebrew. They looked at these Dead Sea Scrolls, which are written 100 to 200 years before Christ, and they are exactly the same as the Hebrew scrolls that were written in 1000 A.D. In other words, you could trust the word 
of God. It's never changed. There's some grammatical words that are a little bit different here and there, but it's exactly the same. And as a matter of fact, they have sections and fragments of all of the Old Testament uh, Bible books in the Dead Sea Scrolls that they have discovered, and they have a complete copy of the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah is the one Old Testament book that spoke more about the Messiah, more about Jesus Christ. So in other words, nobody can say, well, the early church just invented all of this. They just made all of this up to make Jesus a Jewish Messiah figure. No, this is all prior to the birth of Jesus Christ, that the Dead Sea Scrolls were written, the book of Isaiah, the Isaiah Scrolls were written, and the Isaiah Scrolls included all of these Old Testament prophecies at least a couple of hundred years before Christ was born. You could go and see them today. The Isaiah Scrolls are there in Jerusalem. You could go and see them, or at least see copies of them in the uh, museum of the book or of the scrolls of the Word of God, the Bible. And again, when you think about that, you think, okay, so Isaiah was written 700 and some odd years before Christ came, and we actually have handwritten copies of this scroll written hundreds of years before Christ was born, uh, and they're in museums today. This is not something that the church has invented, in other words. It was there before the church was on the scene, before Jesus Christ was born. Isaiah 7, 14. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Isaiah chapter 11, uh, verse 1, which says this, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall slay the wicked. This is the one who's going to come forth from the stem of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. This is a prophecy about Jesus Christ and about the Spirit of God being upon him in his ministry we read also in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1 about the Messiah who is to come. Behold, Isaiah 42, 1, My servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Here we are today. The majority of us are Gentiles around the world that make up the church. Indeed, he has brought forth justice to the Gentiles. He's a Jewish and a Gentile Savior. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail, nor be discouraged, till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. One more prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53. Remember, all of these were written hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ was born. Isaiah chapter 53 speaks of the suffering servant. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He had no form or comeliness and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all upon him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He did not open his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was killed for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the knowledge of this one, My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured his soul out to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. If this is not speaking of Jesus Christ, who else is it speaking of? Who else has fulfilled all of this? written hundreds of years before Christ was born. It describes exactly who Jesus would be, what his mission would be, how he would atone for the sins of the nation of Israel and for the whole world, how he would die and yet he would live to see his seed and his, and his kingdom prosper. Speaking of even the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So next week we're going to dig into this a little bit more. Appreciate your patience this morning. I know it's kind of long for a Sunday morning. What's that? Okay. God bless you all. Let's, Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending Jesus into this world to be our Lord, our Savior, our King, our Messiah, our God with us. We thank you so much, Lord, for the promise of salvation. We thank you, Father, for the sacrifice that you made by sending your Son into the world and Jesus for the sacrifice that you made upon the cross of Calvary. Father, thank you for all of these great men and all of these scholars who have done all of this research to prove these things as true and to prove it to us, Father, so we can know that we hold your very inspired word. Bless your people, Lord. Help us to focus on things that are of heaven and not of this earth. Help us to focus on the eternal and not on the temporal. And use us, we pray, to reach many who are lost for your cause and for the cause of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
We all want to thank you for listening. If this message has blessed you, as we all pray that it has, send the link to this podcast to your friends. Working together, we can get Michael's teaching of the whole of God's inerrant word to all those who hunger to hear it. If you would like to see this ministry expand to reach even more of the broken and lost, if you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, email us at podcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you, as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church to Hatchapi, California.